You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Warning. This episode contains some strong language, and I was not able to edit it out due to some time constraints, so please be advised that some of the content may not be suitable for kids. On the other hand, if they're going to hear it anyway, it might as well be bundled in with archaeology and monsters, am I right? Well, I don't know if I'm right. You have to decide that. Trip to the tomb of King Tut, Giza, Egypt. 1922, U.S. sailors on shore leave past the silent sphinx and pyramids on camel caravan to the recently discovered tomb of Tutankhamun. Here lies the pharaoh of another age. Here are first Americans to see the tomb of the boy ruler guarded by young descendants of his ancient people. Howard Carter, Wright, discovered the treasure-laden tomb by unearthing these steps found the remains and fabulous riches of young King Tutankhamun, pharaoh of Egypt, 40 centuries ago. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Today we're going to be talking with friend of the show and one of the co-hosts of the Archaeological Fantasies podcast, Jeb Card, about his new book, Spooky Archaeology. A link to the book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org, but you can also find it easily on Amazon if you search for the title, Spooky Archaeology. 
It's a really beautiful book and a fascinating read, though I always feel compelled to mention it when I haven't read a book from end to end. In this case, Jeb let me see some of the chapters before release, but at that point, I specifically omitted the chapter that we're going to be discussing in this episode, because in our previous discussions, I didn't want to leak out spoilers that he wanted to hold back until the book was finished. So, Spooky Archaeology, the book, has all kinds of interesting topics which it covers, and we'll get into that in this discussion. But uh, I should tell you this hardback edition is pretty pricey. Now, this is common for books that are printed in an academic press. But if it's not out of your price range, I hope you'll be able to pick up a copy and edit to your own collection. It's, it's really nice. You could also ask your local library to get a copy. Hopefully, a less expensive paperback edition will be available in the future. But let me shut up about the price and just mention that if you like Monster Talk and the various kind of weird topics we talk about here, I think Jeb's book will be right up your alley. In this episode, we'll be looking into one specific chapter wherein he makes a case that H.P. Lovecraft's famous story, The Call of Cthulhu, has some very specific real-world archaeological ties that might surprise you. Let's get to the interview. Monster Talk. This may be our first solo conversation. We've talked before about the fact that you had a book coming out, and now that fabulous book is out. Uh, it, first of all, it's a beautiful book. What, do you know what they call this sort of uh, slick cover? I love these this material. It's coming out in some of the paperbacks and some of the hardbacks. I know there is a word for it. Yeah. I don't know that phrase or word. And right now it's in, I mean, it's considered a hardback. Um, Cause some of them, if they don't have that, if they've got like the slip cover, like the, the cover, you know, that comes off and then that cloth underneath, that's a cloth back. I think this is just a hardback, but it may have some other words. And in the future, there will also be a paperback, but they have to run through the first run of a few hundred before they go there. So gotcha. So our more uh, well-heeled listeners, maybe we'll <laughs> can afford the hardback. It is, a little pricey it is a beautiful book uh i i there's a specific chapter i want to talk about but we can talk a little bit about what else is in so this book. is this is spooky archaeology myth and the science of the past that's right from the university of new mexico press and it's jeb j card is the author and we'll put a link to this in the show notes and we've talked a little bit about uh fairies and some of the other topics supernatural relics yeah if you go back to the to the fairies episode we did a couple of years ago with monster talk and archaeological fantasies more than a little bit of that came from some of my research for chapter two on uh, uh, extra humans. Yeah. And so if we look at the chapter list, we've got uh, time, memory, and myth, the foundations of spooky archaeology. By the way, your uh, uh, appellation of spooky is, uh, is is very useful. It's it's become a, a handy – that one in uh, weird shitology have become very handy for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I long ago started the blog Spooky Paradigm, which I don't really blog at anymore, although occasionally I throw something up, and I knew I had a thing then, and I thought that the press was going to fight me on the title, and they're like, no, we really like this title, actually. they There was some discussion of the subtitle, which again is Myth and the Science of the Past, maybe having it be more like aliens and something, something, but I thought this worked, but Spooky Archaeology, I don't think anybody's ever had a problem with, because it's not necessarily paranormal. And it gets to like an attitude and hell, I have a whole chapter on spies, which, you know, falls into the category of spooks, of course. But yeah, no, it, I find it very useful. It's That's a it's good a, catch all. So, so what kind of, to instead of me telling people, what do you, what kind of topics uh, would you say are covered here in the book? Well, so the way I think of this book, and this is not how the book started, you know, I, 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 I've been long interested in these topics uh, of the weird and what I mean. Not unlike every other Gen X person who's shown up on this show, when I was growing up, I watched In Search Of. Um, but uh, no, I've, I've long mentioned these kind of topics. Um, 
of everything from the the weird to the paranormal and so on. And at some point I wanted to write about their interface with archaeology. But as I began researching this, I really began to grapple with why does so much of this interface with archaeology? In other words, the the absolute one sentence thing is this book explains why there are things like ancient aliens, Indiana Jones, the mummy, cursed museums, haunted museums, all that sort of stuff. But beyond that, I find when I talk to people about being an archaeologist, if they are a scholar or a scientist, they may have some thoughts. But if I talk to people generally, they get into stuff that's mythic. They get into stuff that's paranormal. They ask about they ask me about crop circles. I keep getting that. I'm like, there's nothing archaeological about that, except of course they're circular and they all started in Wiltshire, not terribly far from Stonehenge, and blah, 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 blah. And there's other things involved there, which gets in the ley lines, which is a whole different issue. But why does archaeology have so much of this? I mean, is there really – I mean, I guess there's a spooky history. There is, I guess. Uh, it's not really a spooky economics. Uh, I suppose there's a spooky physics if we're talking about quantum and parapsychology. <laughs> well, 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 there's in perpetual motion. There's a lot of spooky physics topics. I, sure. Yeah, yeah. But if you say you're a physicist – you're not – the first thing people are not going to ask you about necessarily is going to be quantum physics and ghosts. Right, right. Archaeology kind of gets that a lot. It's not the only one, but it's really well represented there. And so it, so it, the book became, as I started working on this, why is that? And then as I kept working on it, it became increasingly clear that I was answering questions about why do people care about the past? Why do they care about the material remains of the past? Why do they care – about archaeology. And once I started realizing there were some core principles about how people approach time and why it matters to them, this stopped being a book just about spectral werewolves and elder gods and UFO crashes and ancient aliens and so on. It started to become something more. And I guess that's the, that's the thing I would say is like, this is a book that is, if you're interested in the ideas about like people have about places like Stonehenge or Machu Picchu or Maya pyramids. If you want to know, Hey, what happened to like lost continents? Where'd that come from? Why is ancient aliens so popular on TV? Why does everybody know the dude with the hair, Giorgio Sukulos, all of those. But along the way, you're going to get a trail through. Why does this matter? Like, why is this so important to people? And it is important to people. It is in ways that I think a lot of people that are my scientific colleagues sometimes lose sight of. So I don't, I don't want to start out by going down a rabbit hole, but sure. don't you think a, lo- a lot of the problem um, is that the general public lacks both the expertise uh, and the deep like knowledge of how these sciences have come to these conclusions, as well as the respect for the depth of that knowledge? Well, I, I would say that's part of it, but yeah. I would also flip that. Like okay. on the one hand, people very much... I, they, there is not a respect necessarily for what's like, there's not a knowledge of necessarily, and certainly not a respect in some cases, the last chapter of the book's about this for what scientific archeologists can do and, and other kinds of scientific approaches to the past, paleontology and so on. But on the flip side, I think people who are professionals who have spent their years training a, how do I take random bits of burnt seeds or broken pottery sherds? or bits of bone, or bits of soil, how do I take these little detective clues and turn this into, holy crap, we really know something about how humans used to live in ways that history can't tell us. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. 
It is. But the people that have done that – so on the one hand, I think a lot of people disrespect that. We can get into why that is because I think there are reasons for that. At the same time, if you have spent years and years and years doing that, I think, one, you've probably been a bit too busy and have lost sight maybe of why this ma- why the past matters to people. And secondly – the way that people engage with time and perceive time and perceive the past and what they find important, which can often fall into pop culture, but frankly often drives pop culture. It's not coming from it necessarily um, or, or it's a relationship. Um, we are trained not to think about those or talk about those because they don't necessarily have a lot to do with our scientific work. Like knowing that people have two ways of looking at time, time of humans and time of things bigger than humans in a mythic sense – does not help you understand pot shirts. It does not help you understand careful analysis of iso- of stable isotopic uh, ratios in bone collagen. It doesn't help you actually answer scientific questions about the past. But if you want to know how I communicate this to people, it is important. Yeah, like you know, and and I do think we lose sight of that, and that is one of the things about the book. Yeah, I, th- I think. Um even before I started listening to uh, the podcast that you're on, the archaeological fantasies, I think one of the things that happened is like I'm a I'm a biology nerd, right? So I, I spent a lot of time reading about biology and thinking about biology and learning about natural selection. And so when I hear people say, you know, things like, "Well, the Earth is only six thousand years old," right? But young Earth creationist sort of arguments, I uh-huh. I think well. You know, I could say, well, scientists say otherwise, but I, I've gotten further than that. You know, I, I could say, well, you know, geology tells us the Earth significantly older. Astronomy tells us the yeah. that our solar system is significantly older. There that, are multiple lines yeah, of evidence. Right, right, exactly. But in archaeology, I didn't really know a lot of the lines of evidence, and I've learned a lot just listening to the show and and uh, in ways that I would never learn uh, watching anything on the History Channel. Right. No. So, no. Um, the the idea that. Uh, that, that multiple lines of evidence support this work uh, in telling us, uh, you know, when did humans come to North America, for example. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of fun and interesting ideas. And I say fun, and when you dig deeper, they're not that fun. The, the ideas, uh, there's, it turns out that a lot of the ideas that are shown on these like History Channel shows about uh, the idea that uh, Vikings were in, you know, Wisconsin or Minnesota, the, these yeah. ideas are, they actually have remarkably racist roots you know not like, all of them not all of them, of them yeah do. but but there was a, there was a lot of ideas about well we're coming into this country and we're crushing these yeah. people who lived here for thousands of years but maybe we were here a long time too and besides yeah. these people never made anything i mean right they they were brutal savages who came in and killed the people who built these beautiful pyramids all right you know so- well, you, what you're referring to is generally put into the phrase the mound builder myth. And Ken Fader and, and Sarah, who are the co-hosts on the show yeah. of Archaeological Fantasies, they've talked a lot about this. Uh, I talk about this, and it's in it's in the book. But I, because I am a Mesoamerican archaeologist, I, I think I fo- – and also Ken's written about this substantially in his book Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries. I, I talk about it, and it's a thing that does come up. Quite a bit, frankly, but I, I probably focus on it less than maybe I thought I was. No, you but, do. I guess my point was just that that in general, I've learned a lot right. more about archaeology by listening. Oh, I to see. Your, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I just want one thing I want to say is this mound builder myth idea. It's it's something you find all around the world. So it's it's found in North America. 
So when you say these ideas have, have racist components, I think there's a twofold thing there. One of them is that some of them are very purposely so. And the mound builder myth is, as you point out, it's a way of explaining, oh, these people are not worth anything. And anything that's found here that's worth something, they didn't do it. Our made-up white ancestors, and it's pretty much always made white, made it that way, whether they're Atlanteans or Phoenicians or, or whatever. Uh, and you find this with Great Zimbabwe in South Africa. Uh, and you find this in other places as well. While it's probably best known in North America, that is not the only place that occurs. And even things like you know discussions of who were the Egyptians falls into this category, attempts to make the Egyptians very European uh, and, and, um, people in the Middle East, very, very white or light, you know, all, all of this falls in that same category. Now that there are some of these ideas that are very purposely focused on race. And we'll talk about why that is in a second. I think when I answer the second one, some of these other ideas though, they date to the beginnings of archeology span and sort of the endings of what's called antiquarianism. Antiquarianism is often considered the roots of archeology, span but it emerges before you have sort of a scientific focus. Antiquarianism more often focuses on things like big architecture, especially things related to written records uh, and a lot of landscape stuff. So a lot of people who use that phrase in the 19th century are not interested in deep evolution. They're not interested as much in scientific things as – Oh, when was this churchyard built? And who can we tie to it from historical records? And what folklore can we push farther, farther back in sort of the sense of human time, like 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 folkloric turning into historical time? Like King Arthur is the province of that style. Scientific archaeologists will talk to you about Iron Age chieftains and the collapse of Roman Britain. They're not going to talk to you about King Arthur. And Aquarians, even if they necessarily might not have believed in him, they'll talk about the folklore and mythology that would tie him to Glastonbury and, and, and to Wales and, and so on and so forth. And you can have a synthesis in both. You can have people who are very scientific look at those as one line of interesting ways of examining this. But at the end of the day, they're going to tell you, well, what can we say is happening on the ground? Now, the reason I bring this up is a lot of the transition – between a more professionalized, institutionalized, especially in universities, more scientific archaeology, and what came before, a sort of pre-professional antiquarianism, a lot of that happens in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, I like the term the long 19th century, which pretty much spans from the French Revolution to World War I. Wow. Because that really is – it's not my invention, my history. I forget who made it up. But there's a term because that is kind of a cultural period where you've got sort of the Napoleonic period and sort of the, the end of the old monarchies and the revolutions and the beginning of sort of modern Europe. And then it all collapses with, with the Great War. And much of the stuff that not just I write about in spooky archaeology but frankly a lot of the stuff you talk about on Monster Talk – has its roots in that sort of long 19th century Victorian era. And if you ever listen to Archaeological Fantasies, the two drinking words are Victorian and Theosophy. Mm -hmm. because, I, I, here goes the rum. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Got some cider. Ah. There we go. Yeah, but from yeah. Aubrey and Matron all the way up to Blackadder Goes Forth is what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. And, 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 and so – there are ideas that are not necessarily about race that you find in sort of all archaeology or some call it pseudo-archaeology, whatever, but 
if an idea was cooked up in the 1880s and has not been like hammered and hammered and hammered through transformations in a professional or sort of like peer review kind of thing, there's a good chance it's going to basically be preserving a lot of that 19th century style, which is why you see an emphasis on uh, in these ideas of racial lineages, uh, whether it's Nephilim or aliens or Salutrians or, or whatever, uh, in a lot of all archaeology in the 21st century. Okay. And for some people, that's an appeal. We're actually going to cover the Nephilim a little deeper. We've, I think we've ah. lightly mentioned it, but uh, we're in, in theory, uh, if Jason Colavito can get his schedule straightened out, ah. he, he's our Nephilim guy. Yeah, I'll leave that to him. He's done yeah. a lot of stuff with the Watchers. I mean, I I reference his work in the book, and uh, but he's done he's done quite a bit of that. But but, but Salutrian yeah. you, that comes up a lot on your other show. What what tell me about the Salutrian hypothesis? Uh, very very briefly, and I don't yeah, really very talk briefly because in- we do want to get to our our core. Yeah, topic. I don't really talk about this in in the book, but very briefly. Um, the Salutrian is a legitimate archaeological culture found basically in France, all arguably in, in Spain, because you know that border didn't exist, in, about 22,000 years ago um, in um, Paleolithic Europe. And they made beautiful lancelate, basically leaf-shaped um, spear points. And they are, you know, uh, before Lascaux, before the caves of Lascaux, but after the caves of Chauvet, we have artwork, all these kind of things. They're some of the first people that make things like sewing needles. They may be older than them, but we know they've got them. And spear throwers. Well, there are a couple, literally like a couple. Or, no, no, spear throwers, is that the same as an atlatl? Yeah, atlatl is the name. Uh, Europeans had not seen them for over 10,000 years. So when they started see- The first time they started seeing spear throwers is when they were used to throw spears at Spaniards in 1520 in, in Tenochtitlan in Mexico. And, we, and, we, and, and I suppose that if we reject the solution hypothesis, then the atlatl was a, a either carried over from Asia or it was uh, I mean, it's, reinvented. It could have been reinvented, but it, pro- well, I mean, it, it almost certainly came over from Siberia. Uh, with with people, the bow and arrow actually doesn't. The bow and arrow is a much more recent thing in the Americas. Uh, it's only about it's a couple thousand years at most. Most people say it's about a thousand, a bit older than that. That does not appear to come over fifteen to twenty five thousand years ago from Siberia. The atlatl appears to, the spear thrower appears to, um, but there there are literally like a handful of archaeologists. The vast majority do not agree with this. Who know their lithics and have looked at lithics called Clovis, which at one time were considered the oldest lithics in North America, stone tools. Uh, We now know this is not the case, but at one time they were considered that and said, oh, these look like Salutrian points. And they said it both the shape of them and also some very specific things. Now, I am not a lithicist. I'm not going to argue the very specific things, but there are lithicists who will argue the shape of them being similar to Salutrian points as well. They're both used by people with spear throwers to stab mammoths and mastodons, like from a distance. Like it's like bullets look the same for very obvious reasons of aerodynamics. Um, but they argued that oh, because these are similar, maybe because we find these things in Spain and France twenty-two thousand years ago, and we find Clovis points in North America thirteen thousand years ago, that they must be related, and yet people come from Europe. Now, that's a hypothesis that the vast majority of archaeologists find genetic and archaeological evidence to stand against. But then it also got embraced by people who are like, oh, Europeans coming to America, those are white people. Never mind that the oldest skeletons we've got before seven, 8,000 years ago that we can do genetics on don't look white in Europe. 
Uh, that's a that's a more recent thing. Well, including, uh, I think we should mention that was it. Uh, uh, it's not Chinawick Man, is it? The the Chinawick uh, Man. Chinawick Man. Sorry, yeah. Thank you, Chinawick Man. Man Siberia. He he's very na- very, very na- related to all modern Native Americans. Exactly. There was a, there was a, a little window of time when people thought he looked different. Yeah, but yeah, genetically, I, I, don't, even, I yeah. don't even like to get into that because yeah. of the DNA and that's so crystal at this point. Yeah, but it's basically this idea. And and it's come up this year because the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had a producer who decided to do a show that was very pro this idea. Um, and we actually had on our show Jennifer Raff, who's an archaeogeneticist who's, who participated in that show and was like, yeah, no, all the genetics say this is not true. So, uh, um, so yeah. yeah. But I don't talk about that as much. One thing I want to say about spooky archaeology, while I talk about the reality of things in there, it's not primarily like – Here's why all these ideas are wrong. It's more like, what are these ideas? Where do they come from? Why do people care about them? And I, I want to reiterate that even if you're not into archaeology, I think the, the book will be for both educational oh, yeah. and interesting. I think that- for listeners of this show, there's a section on Bigfoot. Oh yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> we should talk about that before we go about what you're teaching. But let, let's let's hop into the topic that I wanted to talk about for this sure. this episode, sure. which, which is. Uh, well, you know, it's a monster talk, right? So let's talk about Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a whole uh, chapter in here on the Call of Cthulhu and uh, and on uh, mm-hmm. cosmic mythology. Yeah, I, I, there's a whole chapter on Lovecraft, cosmic mythology, and frankly, uh, the the chapter before it on on horror literature and horror movies that then gets into witchcraft. That was all going to be squished into the Lovecraft and Cthulhu chapter, and it just became obvious that there was just so much. That I had to break that one up, and that's also why there's a, a whole chapter on spies because that was going to go with the detective stuff, and that all ends up being three chapters. So it's a big chunk of the book. Yeah. But to be blunt, uh, you may have seen that uh, I tweeted recently. Jason Colavito put up a post. I worked with him a couple of years ago. And we can talk about this if you want because it does tie in. Sure. Um, we think we've basically found more or less the real Necronomicon. It's not the actual Necronomicon because it doesn't exist, kids. But um, something that may have influenced it and is very like it. And I argue that I have a fairly, I think, strong, circumstantial, but strong case that I think I know where Cthulhu comes from. Let, let's unpack that to the extent that you want to without people buying the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's talk about, because wh- wh- what is amazing to me is, you know, as an English major, uh, just this one chapter alone would have been the kind of thing I would have been really proud to write as a chapter myself or, or as, a, as an essay. Uh, so it's good stuff, well-documented. You've got plenty of citations. Um, so you, you actually ass- uh, attack this sort of argument uh, very much from the beginning of where does the story come from and what influences uh, get into H.P. Lovecraft's head to make him write this story the way he did, which I, I am always fascinated about because – you could argue chronologically these things occurred first, so therefore they could have been an influence. But you you go a little further here. Yeah. So, I mean, I personally – so you, one of the things you hear Lovecraft scholars say is like, oh, you know, he – Lovecraft never used the phrase Cthulhu mythos, which of course is true. Um, and Cthulhu is not even a really important part of it, which if you look at his cosmology that he eventually develops is true. But from a how this thing came to be – there's a reason the story, The Call of Cthulhu, is famous. It is the 
blueprint for everything he does afterwards in many respects that gets called the Cthulhu Mythos story. And it is a huge break from what he was doing before as literature. And it became increasingly clear to me that the huge, there are two big changes. One, he read Charles Fort, which I know you've talked about Fort on this show. Uh, but Charles Fort is arguably the grandfather of almost everything we think about as kind of paranormal, especially if you're looking at it from a, a more scientific and like I look up scientific reports and news reports way versus mystical revelation way. Right, right. To, to the extent that that people call it Fortean phenomena is yeah. a, a blanket statement. Exactly. And, yeah. So, so that, that is a huge influence, I think, on The Call of Cthulhu. We know he read it. And second, he read Fort. And second, he mentions Fort in some other later stories. And secondly, called the Call of Cthulhu. That story, the clear difference in my mind, and maybe I'm biased from stuff he had done before, is it is it is an archaeological science fiction story. It it is a story that if you did science fiction through archaeology, you get the Call of Cthulhu. And he's not the only one who did that. But he arguably creates the most important story that influences many others that come afterwards. It becomes the of, archetype of the archaeological yes. horror, right? I, I, I think it does. There are things before, including the fact that he is a fan of Arthur Machen, who is doing some of the same things. But he goes much further. And I, I think one of the reasons why this hasn't been talked about as much – I mean on the one hand, I mean Cthulhu and Lovecraft have become these pop culture icons today – in no small part because of stuff like Sandy Peterson's game, The Call of Cthulhu. And if you think of your stereotypical you know, character in that game, who are they? They're an archaeology professor. So, I mean, it's not that far. But I possibly because of the people that have done academic work on Lovecraft before, they have focused on his atheism. They have focused on his racism for good reason because he's super racist. They have focused in particular like on his interest in cosmology and astronomy, and there's been very little interest in archaeology. This story is very difficult to understand without archaeology. It starts with an artist taking a bas-relief in an ancient style that he has carved recently to an archaeologist. That archaeologist then, like Fort, collects strange clippings, and then he tells the story in his notes about – when he was at an archaeology conference and somebody brought him bits from an ancient cult that's an artifact that he then studies with hieroglyphs all over it, which then leads to his nephew, who's still alive, who's an anthropologist with archaeological interests, finding notes from a museum about another artifact taken from a cult that then takes all of this to a ruined city, which is described very much like cities like Machu Picchu or Kish in which this ancient alien lives or dies or does both. Yeah. It's really hard to understand this story as not an archaeological story. Oh, I would agree 100% with that. I, I just reread it like two weeks ago uh, by coincidence. I wasn't really yeah. like, planning it for this, but it's, it's very fresh in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, many of his stories he does later, including most famously Mountains of Madness, is – Straight up archaeology. It sure not, is. It, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, look, we're going to now explore an ancient ruined city and find the history of Earth. That's the story. Yeah. yeah. And, and the idea uh, – some of the ideas here, the uh, 
within the story. It, it's not so much in this story, but the idea that the the human race arises from the the work of these aliens. And oh, in in some of the stories, it's almost like the uh, Mountains of Madness in particular. It's not just that humans come from these aliens. It's like we're an accident. Like, hello, yeah. if you got any pride in being a human, drop it. You know. <laughs> well, what's what's interesting is so so this this so the, the uh, at the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraft's kind of magnum opus of ancient alien stuff uh, has ancient aliens come to Earth and create us as an accident. The Call of Cthulhu actually is much closer to what you'll hear on like the History Channel, where aliens come here and maybe they mess with us. But they become our gods, and they're remembered as gods and monsters of all kinds, to sort of paraphrase the Algernon Blackwood uh, epigraph that's at the beginning of the story. Um, or not epigraph, it's the other word. But uh, um, where these things come down, and they create human religion. And it is – you have to read between the lines, but basically it is clear that human religion and culture, to a large extent, descend – from Cthulhu and its kind in that story. And so, and yeah. Well, and so let's talk about that a little bit because we haven't I, – I, I'm still doing this series on the history of magic. Sure. And, and one of the topics I want to cover is Margaret Murray and her, yeah. her book, uh, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. Which right. I'm enjoying. I'm, I'm reading it very slowly. Uh, I have, oh, not, that's a, it's a slog. It's not – it's not as bad as I expected. I'm actually enjoying it. I just have a hard time. I have my reading pile is is onerous at best. I it's it's I have a, a stack of precariously stacked books. Uh, well, I'll, I'll <laughs> warn any readers who are trying to read yeah. Margaret. So Margaret Murray for our audience was one of the first professional archaeologists. She um, was trained at University College London. She had to fight for her right to get her degree after being trained. Like back then, they're like, oh, yes, women, you can study here, but we're not going to give you the degree. <laughs> That's for boys. right? Yeah. And so she's like, no, screw you. And, and she got her degree. Um, and she worked with Flinders Petrie, who is considered one of the very first scientific archaeologists, often considered the first scientific Egyptologist. There's the Petrie Museum in London to Egyptology. and um, But he's not related to the dish, right? I don't think so. Well, I actually – I've never thought about that. It's spelled the same way. Well, it's not. I think there's an extra E. I think there's an extra E at the end. Um, but I have wondered about that. But uh, but that's a different she, kind of culture that they do with those. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's very, very nicely done. She she is a, she's an Egyptologist. She works in Egypt, and but she increasingly then, especially during the first war, the first world war, she turns her focus to England and Britain. And increasingly to folklore in a way similar to uh, a number of scholars, probably most famously Sir, uh, George, Sir James George Frazier, who writes The Golden Bough, gives us many of our ideas about – have you ever heard the phrases of sympathetic or contagious magic and ideas uh, about ritual and dying kings and so on? Uh, this ties into all of that. Uh, she gets really interested in sort of looking at origins of religion and culture where she is. And she goes and looks at witch trial documents from the early modern period. And one of the things people often remember, forget or, or sort of don't get quite right is they think of medieval witches. It's like, well, there were fear of things in the medieval period. But honestly, if you were like, I'm a witch in the medieval period or a werewolf or something, you would be considered that there was something wrong with you and you should, you should actually seek help, uh, et cetera. It's only in really the early modern era – a period of religious turmoil, like after about 1500 yeah, and religious yeah. warfare and the Reformation, that you start getting people hung and burned in large quantities as witches. That really becomes a thing of the 16th century 
and the 17th century where it declines in the 18th century. Um, so it's really an early modern thing, really of the Renaissance, if you think about it in that sense. She looks at the witch trial documents and she is not the first person to argue the idea of the old religion, the idea that these 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 witches were not innocent people that were accused by their neighbors for political or social or personal reasons, but were instead members of an ancient secret religion. Now, most scholars today do not hold with that. And even many people in the neo-pagan community, which is partly inspired by this, realize that there's the history here is not great. Uh, Ronald Hutton, with his book The Triumph of the Moon, amongst others, is probably the best expert on this. I highly recommend his work. He's a dynamic speaker, cool stuff. Uh, and he's like, no, like this is fascinating, this is awesome, but the history isn't there. But she comes up in the 19-teens when she goes to Glastonbury and elsewhere with this idea and publishes it in its fullest initial form in 1921, the witch cult in Western Europe, which argues, in essence, the idea that, oh, there's been this long ancient religion back to the Paleolithic that had, became hidden under Satanism and Diana worship and all of that much, 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 much later. Um, and in the 1921 book, she talks about it as a thing of the past, but she continues to talk about it and write about it, and it becomes increasingly clear that she thinks it persists to the present. And one of her friends in, or one of her colleagues in the Folklore Society is Gerald Gardner, who was something of an amateur anthropologist and archaeologist himself. He goes and finds – and I'm air quoting here, or he finds, not air quoting uh, – in the New Forest in England a coven – and this becomes his books in the early 1950s that spawn Wicca, like he is considered the founder of Wicca in that sense. So she is writing about all of this. Now, if you're a Lovecraft fan, you may recognize some of this because Lovecraft name checks Murray and the witch cult in Western Europe in several of his stories, including The Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, – so my impression was he didn't necessarily agree that it was true. Oh, no, he did. Oh, he did. Okay. But he, he, definitely, he, he definitely fictionalized it though. His he, cults were like her cults to turn to 11. Well, yes. Well, yes and no. So he has letters like 10 plus pages long because that's how he did things um, where he's writing Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan, about oh how – yeah, yeah. Yeah, how incredibly true all of this is how Murray is cutting-edge anthropology, and how he thinks that this was involved in Salem. This he very much believed. Cool. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And so when he writes about witches, so the first, there's a lot of debate, not a lot of debate because not that many people, but I have debated with people back and forth. The people who are better Lovecraft scholars than I suggest that he read The, the Witch Cult in Western Europe Sometime in the fall of 1923, he clearly reads it before the festival. A small story he writes, uh, which is which which quotes this stuff. I mean, like it's clearly in there. Yeah. yeah. So so I, I remember this one where he goes. The festival is the one where the guy's going to the town, and then everybody's yes. like like all the people are secretly involved in this cult, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, and that's the first time he really starts talking in any real significance about the Necronomicon. Um. Earlier that year, he writes The Rats in the Walls. Now, The Rats in the Walls is all about like ancient cults and sects and archaeology in Europe and in England specifically. So you'd think that Murray is an influence. 
The problem is, is it's not certain he read it before he wrote that story. If something came out that showed that he read The Witch Cult in Western Europe before he wrote The Rats on the Walls, I would not be surprised at all. But since I can't show that, I don't want to say that that's an influence because there's a lot of people writing very similar stuff. I mean, Murray's not in a vacuum. At that time, about prehistoric survivals and all of this antiquarian stuff, so it could just be a coincidence. But it's the same year. It's clearly the same year. So you say he turns it up to 11. If you go and read his description of the Cthulhu cult in the Louisiana swamps or in Greenland in um, the Call of Cthulhu, it is almost indistinguishable from Murray's descriptions. And there are several clear parallelisms Mm. with Murray's descriptions of the witch cult. Now, in that story, he literally says, oh, it's totally not the witch cult. It's something separate. I think he doth protest too much. Interesting, because like I, I, I specifically I haven't finished reading Murray, and he specifically mentions that this is worse, right? That's why I thought that. Okay, yeah, yeah no, he yeah. does. Yeah, but like it's around a ring around a bonfire. <laughs> sure. In the center, there's a pillar with an image of the god. In this yeah, case, Cthulhu yeah. versus the black god. No, and they joyously dance and they sound like animals and it's like this is this this is the same thing but murray, murray and, i assume does not actually have the elder gods appearing and you know wandering around in the woods nearby well in the stories so this is why murray was so uh popular interesting um okay. I, i'm excited I'm, about I'm, where this I'm, is going I'm, <laughs> I'm pulling i'm pulling from the work of i think it's jacqueline simpson if i'm remembering the name right uh from the folklore society who writes she really wrote an article i think in 94 why did people believe murray so you get people like Montague Summers, who I know you've done a show on, who are like, all this stuff is real, the devil's real, the devil manifests, witches are real. And then you get and werewolves. people yeah. – And werewolves, yeah. <laughs> and then you get people at that time who are like, it's all bullshit. It's all, it's all garbage and none of it's true. Murray was like, look, I don't believe that the devil is a paranormal reality in these things. So when they say the devil showed up – Maybe it's a dude in a Scooby-Doo mask who shows up as a devil. And when he has sex with people, maybe he's wearing a prosthesis, which is why they talk about the devil's penis being cold in in witchcraft stories. This is her idea. So Murray's stuff was sort of like there's always that, you know, that idea of there's somebody that, you know, it's like, oh, did you know I saw a thing where werewolves and vampires – that's actually a, a, a disease that causes people to get hairy or need blood. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, if you're an actual scholar of these things, you know that's not really true. Yeah, like this you know is that that's literally sort of like something a... I was complaining about on the Monster Talk Facebook group the other day. The yeah. the whole thing about people who ascribe these paranormal things to rare medical conditions. There's rare I mean, medical there's, conditions that, that yeah, parallel porphyria, these things. Like, porphyria. like porphyria is a great example. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, and there's hypertrichinosis or hyper... Right. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah the, the whole thing about the super hairy thing. But, but the, the, that's so rare. There's so It's so much simpler for people to just make stuff up. Well, yeah. and not only that, yeah. not only that, many of the symptoms in those cases are stuff from movies when you go back to the old werewolf and vampire stories, they that don't aren't have there. Those exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah. so it's it's retrofitting a scientific air quotes explanation when reality these are older cultural traditions that you Which don't. Which is a little understand. better, in my opinion, than saying, "Well, <laughs> gods aren't real." Clearly, these were aliens. 
yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. yeah it's 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 an explanation, and 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 so I think Jackie Simpson uh, argues uh, that that's why one of the reasons people like Murray is she offered like this isn't just stupid, and it's not the devil; it's something plausibly anthropological. Yeah, uh, the, the history doesn't bear that out as much, but you could see that appeal. So Lovecraft, he takes these, he clearly bases his cult on, in my opinion, and he gives us a smoking gun. His commonplace book. His so his commonplace book was published, I believe, ooh, ooh, by uh, Barlow. You should explain what that is because I, I love yeah. the idea of the commonplace book. And the commonplace I, book is yeah. basically like your writing notes. Like I've got a book where I write stuff down when I have an idea that I'm going to come back and like use it for a story later on. Or like, I saw this. I saw this cool quote. This inspired yeah. me. Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And, and remember, Lovecraft. Yeah. He took tons of inspiration from dreams. And so it's kind of like, oh my god, I had this cool idea in a dream. Including the beginning of the Call of Cthulhu comes from a dream. Um, so when he has a dream, it's like, oh, I write this down and I use it in a story later, which is great. Uh, I believe it was it was Barlow, his uh, his literary executor initially, who published the com- the commonplace book, which is Lovecraft's. Um, sort of story ideas, and they're dated by year. They're not dated within year, which had been really wonderful, but they're dated by year, and he writes in several, and I don't have them in front of me, but basically one of them is witch cult, don't know your mem- don't know if people in your town could be members centered on ancient Pacific Island or something to that effect. Yeah, because that's, that's, it's, the, it's, that's the Cthulhu cult, yeah. and he calls it the witch cult. And it's not well. That's pretty. That's kind of a yeah. That's a smoking. That's gun. a smoking yeah. gun. <laughs> but I, I will. I, as we're talking, I will find the quote because that's that is actually a uh, that it is a smoking gun. When I found that, I was frankly stunned. I I did not realize it would be that 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 explicit. Clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so I don't want to spoil the the book, right? But like you you move on to talk about uh, uh, Howard Carter. Uh, the archaeologist, because again, archaeology plays a key part in this story. Uh, how does how does Howard Carter fit into this? Because he probably was the most famous archaeologist at the time, right? So, I mean, Howard Carter, I I really like him. He has some problems. Uh, first of all, he was not like gentry. I just want to, or like you know, nobility. His his patron, Lord Carnarvon, the guy who actually does die after the excavations immediately or near, near that gets a little tut curse thing going sort of, we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, Carter was a professional archeologist. He had been, well, he became an archeologist, professional archeologist. He was good at art. He was, he was an excellent illustrator. That's how we got into this. Um, but he, he digs up tut in 22. When this happens in late 1922 and early 1923, I don't want to name, Another news topic where every day you go on Twitter and you know there's going to be some news about that topic, but you can put some things in there you might guess. Um, but there was Tut every day. Which newspapers say, King Tut was the Kardashians of the 1920s. I was going with somebody else, but let's see up there. <laughs> um, I was going somewhere a little more something. But uh, but Tut was in the news for about a year every day. It was on the front page of news. Now – we might get into this, but there were a couple of news agencies that had exclusive rights, which gets complicated. But this was in the news every day. So I, I guess I am going to spoil this to some degree. I mean, because you can get much more out of this. But one of the things I did to understand this is I did a content analysis of every article <clears throat> in the New York Times during H.P. Lovecraft's adult life. Wow. Um, about archaeologists. There were over a thousand. And I was curious about themes. 
Because it turns out there are basically a couple of themes in the Call of Cthulhu. One's dead archaeologists. It's a, there's, there's a lot of dead archaeologists in that story um, and, and scholars. And the other one is sunken continents. So I looked for these as well as just looking for other things. But that sort of stood out. And one of the things I basically did is I found that – so archaeology was popular. Archaeologists become way more popular in the news media – not immediately necessarily after Tut, but about a year after Tut. Like I think what happened was is there was a big, huge news focus and they made a lot of money on selling papers about the Tut excavations because these were so amazing. And then it died down and then stories that could evoke that started to be written increasingly by the media, especially stories about archaeologists in peril or dying or in adventures – there's a reason why so many of our stories in the pop media about archaeologists are set from about 1920 to about 1940. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Because this is when this, this narrative was popular. Um, basically, oh, this, just, to plug your book a little more, uh, sure. this may sound dry to some listeners, but the you've got some really cool visualizations of this information yeah. that are s- completely hilarious. I love those this. are those were done. I mean, I did the numbers behind these graphs, but those were done by my student Emily Ratvasky. Uh, those are at great. Miami. Those, yeah, are, yeah, no, she's an awesome artist. So, so the the tentacles and the, and the mummies columns, and everything, mummies, those are beautiful. Yeah. Those are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> No, we, we worked together on those. But uh, um, but basically, I went through and found that about a year after Tut, so Tut's in 23, starting around late 24, especially early 1925. Now, let's put some chronology on here. Call of Cthulhu is written by Lovecraft between August 1925 and August 1926, and it's set 
more or less, in March and April 1925. Right around the time this story is set, there starts to be lots of stories about dead archaeologists. Lots of them. And they get increasing media. There's also stories, for reasons we might get into, although I can maybe leave this alone, about sunken continents, especially in the New York Times. Now, here's the thing. One, we note... Lovecraft wrote the time, read the times. He actually put a help wanted ad. And by the way, or a help wanted, but like employment wanted, that is one of the hardest things I've ever had to read his, his employment wanted ad he put out because <laughs> he had no idea how to get a job. None. Uh, it's like him basically being self deprecating rather than promoting himself. There's a reason he wasn't getting work. Um, he's followed up leads in the times like he would go look for antiquarian things after reading about it in the Times. He was living in New York at this time. And we also know – I'd love to find if anybody ever had his paper clippings. We know he clipped newspapers to inspire his stories. He tells us this. Yeah. He writes about that's part of his method is he – like Fort, he clips newspaper articles and uses them. And he says ancient cities, sea serpents – strange things like he literally puts ancient cities in with strange things because of course hence my book but in essence at the time he is writing the call of cthulhu and sets it there are more stories about archaeologists dying or in peril and more stories about sunken continents together than at any other time in his entire life wow yeah and especially at the time he sets the story in march and april of 1925 and then if you go look at those specific stories and again you can read the book for this they're reminiscent and one of the things is the middle american research institute at tulane university my alma mater where i learned my archaeology um is doing their very first expedition and it's all over the new york times and some of the language is reminiscent of the call of cthulhu Tulane University is name-checked in the story, and they had not been known for archaeology before that. I find that to be a striking coincidence. So in essence, Tut and the Tut curse concept primes the notion that, hey, stories about archaeologists in, in peril and daring do will sell newspapers. So for about 15 years, that is what the narrative of archaeology is, and it's a very popular narrative in the mass media, The Call of Cthulhu is written as Lovecraft's first really serious archaeology story immediately after that. I don't think that's any accident. And I mean after that. I mean at the beginning of it when it starts. Yeah. In essence, Cthulhu is an undead god that's hidden in a sunken city, in an underground city that or, or people poke into and then archaeologists die. King Tut is a undead god that is in an ancient ruin and people poke into and archaeologists die. They're kind of similar. So, uh, get your drinks ready. I'm going to talk about theosophy for just a second. Or actually, I'm hoping you will. Um, uh-huh. One of the, the things that uh, uh, you've talked about on your other podcast is this uh, this sort of origin of these uh, these ancient continents. We've talked a little bit about Atlantis before on the show. I right. mean, uh, for people who don't you've know... Had, you've had Ken, I think, to talk about Atlantis. We have. We have. Yeah. And, and in fact, my, uh, my Twitter handle is Dr. Atlantis, which is supposed to be kind of like Dr. Seuss... 
uh, it, I'm neither from Atlantis nor am I a doctor, but uh, uh, that's that's kind of one of those funny little appellations that kind of talks about things I'm interested in. So, um, or at least I was interested in around 2000, 2001 when I came up with that handle. Um, but the, the, but Lovecraft actually uh, he's referencing uh, Margaret Murray, but he's also yes. looking at Theosophy and and. Yes. Uh, uh, he's notoriously or, or famously uh, a, a materialist, an atheist. Uh, but, but unlike he, Murray, he did not believe in theosophy. Yeah, but he minds this stuff, so he explicitly yes. doesn't believe in, 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 yes. in, in this. So, so in a nutshell, um, theosophy, anthropology is you know it emerges in the 19th century with with scholars and then scientists comparing cultures not always carefully not always in a fair way but comparing elements of cultures to try to understand what makes humans tick like what are human universals what are human differences and it's much more than that now but that's its core going back to tyler and so on um theosophy is growing up around the same time and it's people sometimes scholars but often not taking all these bits and trying to turn it into, oh, can we reconstruct the ancient religion that we all must have and tie it into mysticism and spiritualism and all of that? And there actually are quite a few early anthropologists or quasi-anthropologists who are also theosophists, uh, which is a whole other interesting uh, stream. But it has all this stuff of sunken continents and root races and spiritual evolution and channeled information from uh, ascended masters from the mystical East. And it's very colonial in that sense. It is arguably the origin of the New Age, although in a sense, theosophy grabs a lot from Swedenborgianism, which gets stuff from alchemy. I mean, there's a, there's a, talking about rabbit holes. Oh, it, it, it that is are hard a to hole. define. Yeah. But and, it, it also, we, we've talked about it extensively on Monster Talk. If you look back at our Western esotericism stuff, uh, this uh, character of uh, Madame Blavatsky, yes. uh, she, she brings in uh, Buddhism and mystic arts and all these other of, things. A lot of Hinduism and, yeah. and modifies it. So, you know, a lot of these ideas, you've, you did your show. Uh, with Tolpas. Uh, with, we, yeah. yeah, Joel Laycock with Tolpas. Yeah. That comes from... Uh, theosophical misunderstandings of the concept of a tulpa uh, and transforming it into sort of Victorian notions of elementals and fairies. And so, I, so all this is in there. Now, Lovecraft, so there's a lot of discussion about this, and there's been more about this, and I refer to several scholars on this and, and interested parties. Um, Lovecraft eventually does get some theosophical knowledge uh, when he goes down to uh, is it E. Hoffman Price in uh, New Orleans and has like a 23-hour conversation about this with him. Um, in, but that's well after the Call of Cthulhu. It's well after some things that are clearly theosophical themes end up in um, his stories. But theosophy was so common that he read uh, a book. It's not by Spence. I'd have to – I'd have to find it, but right before he writes The Call of Cthulhu, uh, Lovecraft reads a book about sunken continents, The Story of Atlantis and the Lost Mur Lemuria by W. Scott Elliott, okay. which has theosophical concepts in it, uh, and he was familiar with it from other ways. So he references theosophy in The Call of Cthulhu and sort of makes fun of it, and one could argue that The Call of Cthulhu is a burlesquing of theosophy, and on one level it is. Um, so he does put this in there, but he says openly in his letters, this is all garbage, but it's really useful garbage. Like I can use this and mine it. And he did. 
Um, so that is one of the influences here as well. Absolutely. That is so interesting to me. I mean, because what he's doing is a, a distillation of the zeitgeist in a lot of ways. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's taking all these amazing... So the fact that Call of Cthulhu becomes one of his most famous stories, it's it's it's... For readers at the time, it probably was even more impressive at tying together. Because now, in the 21st century, we're reading this like, oh, it's a 1930s story, you know, or whatever. Yeah. You know, But at the time, it was almost like cutting-edge sci-fi tying into mysticism. Absolutely. This is one of the things that drives me nuts about the very game-focused and, and all of that nerd-focused, like, Lovecraft fandom is so much of it has has gotten stuck with and now we will make accents and now we will have Tommy guns and now we will have, you know, old cars and all of that because uh, there, you know, if you look at the history of like the gaming on it, there were, there were conscious decisions to set it in the 1920s and it's never really been shaken. His stories were using at the time cutting edge science as he saw it. Now, some have pointed out that when it comes to anthropology, uh, Lovecraft was picking and choosing what he liked. So Murray, some considered cutting edge science, others did not, whereas he has no interest in Franz Boas, who's debunking race at this very moment. I think that that is a perspective that comes from later, that we see Franz Boas as more cutting edge than, say, Murray or, say, others. Um, that's, I think, um, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, I think that that is um, seeing how the field fell out, whereas these were things that were debated. I mean, I've seen newspaper articles from the 20s and 30s where, like, Boaz is debating people that are much more comfortable with anthropological concepts of race. And it's a debate between experts. This was not a settled thing at the time, even though one side turned out to be very wrong uh, and damagingly wrong. Um, So I could see... That's not an excuse for Lovecraft. It's a, oh, there's a racist one and a non-racist one. I think I'll take this one. You know, I mean, that's because he's a racist. Um, but I mean, he's he's including Pluto. He's including you know new engineering. I mean, he's including Einstein in some of his stories. He's not understanding all of it, but he's trying. Yeah. No, he is he is writing cutting edge science fiction of his day. And I think because of how it's come to us, and it's no small accident, I think, and you've, you know, I, I, there are other people have talked about this, it's not just me, that the, the game, The Call of Cthulhu, emerged, it, it comes out the same year as The Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, arguably, the game Call of Cthulhu and all of its things that come from it are kind of sort of hitting that same vein of, you know, evil idols in ancient temples and tomb raiding and, and curses and all of that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I totally agree. I mean, there, there are a lot of games that sort of try to capture that sort of uh, a high adventure pulp fiction mechanic. Yeah. But what I Which think Lovecraft sep- is not doing. Right, exactly. What I was going to say, what separates it is in, in the Lovecraft game, I mean, within Call of Cthulhu, they do at least try to give a mechanic to capture the fact that people typically go insane when they encounter this. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, so, and, and, and yeah. Sandy Peterson, the, the, the primary creator of the game, he very much – he actually wanted to set it in the modern day. And he's talked about this. The, the creators at Chaosium, they didn't get Lovecraft, but they liked the whole Roaring Twenties stuff. So that was the compromise they came to. Oh, that's and funny. So Delta Green emerges as sort of a, a secondary property, but Delta, Delta Green is comes from a different company, yeah. and, and it actually emerges in a fan, not a fanzine, in a zine, uh, the Unspeakable Oath in the early '90s uh, from Pagan Publishing. 
in many ways as an answer, as like a, we're going to update this to the minute. Yeah. And it's going to be modern and it's going to be gritty and cutting edge. And of course, now some of it looks a little hokey from 30 years on, but it was very much a response to that, like shotguns and haunted houses and Maya temples with date with deep ones underneath them and so on. But no, Lovecraft was, was trying to do this with cutting edge science as he understood it. And so that's one of the things I think is he's not a professional. He's not even close. I mean, I'm, I don't even think he gets his high school diploma. He's an autodidact. He certainly doesn't go to college, but he's reading all this stuff in the press. And if you look at what's in the press and in popular books, I've read the books on archaeology he's read. Like he, he at one point Lovecraft makes lists of for his 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 followers like if you want to know about archaeology, read these books. And I have. And those are those books were actually pretty decent for their time. They weren't pseudoscience. There were things that we would say are wrong now, but frankly less than you might think. Um, but you can see basically that he's channeling a lot of what's out there. And as you said, kind of condensing it and remixing it. Yeah. And here comes another one that should be a drinking whenever I'm talking drinking word, whenever I mention Michael Barkoon and his book, culture of conspiracy, where he talks about faction, fict, ugh, fact, fiction reversals where many things in conspiracy culture and paranormal culture, occulture, you know, rejected knowledge will be in fiction and in fact, and you know, you might have people talking about Stargates in a movie called Stargate. And then that might be influenced by Eric Von Daniken. Then it gets turned into a movie Stargate. And then that idea of Stargates gets turned into Stargates under Babylon. And that's why we went to war in Iraq in 2003. And these become conspiracy theories and mythology. And, you see this process of things that go from fiction to fact and fiction to fact, and they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the rough edges get sanded off, and they get turned into more digestible stories. Yeah, that's actually – so let me throw this uh -huh. out there. that What eventually I'm going to do on this show at some point is have Susan Blackmore on ah. to talk about memetics because yeah. – uh, she's such an interesting character and she used to be very much into uh, parapsychology. parapsychology has become very skeptical but she's yeah, very and, and interested open in that, about it. very open about it but she also is very interested in this idea of information transfer so uh, th this idea of remixing it happens and I, I mean you look at folklore you look at monster lore uh, the idea of uh, we talked about with Joe Laycock of syncretism yeah. Uh, the, the idea that like you know when you merge two religions together, people sort of like mm -hmm. sand off the parts that are in conflict, right. in, conf and, in conflict. <laughs> and this I mean, happens with yeah. Lovecraft. Yeah. You know, uh, Jason Colavito and others, but Jason Colavito is the primary person who was really linking all of this early on, like 14 years ago, 13 yeah. years ago now. Um, he points out that Lovecraft then gets so Lovecraft one of the first places, not unlike Jerry Lewis. That he gets uh, recognized as a big as a big literature person is in France, mm, mm -hmm. and they give him like an award after his death and all of this before he becomes really big in English literature, where he's seen as a, as a hack. Um, in France, he's taken much more seriously, and the first people that produce him in French or translate him into French are Jacques Bergier or Bergier and Paulwell. I always confuse her. I think it's Louis Bergier and Jacques Paulwell or Lou, the other way around. I can't remember. But it's, Louis, it's Bergier and Paulwell. They are occultists and writers and they write the book, and I don't do French, The Matin de Magician, The Morning of the Magicians. I didn't and make that connection. The, I knew that they were related, but I didn't realize they yeah. were literally related. 
Yeah. And, so and now they related. now they say one of them says that they corresponded with Lovecraft. There is no evidence of this, but given how much correspondence Lovecraft did, and it was a lot. I would not. He wrote. Some have said he's written. He wrote a hundred thousand letters, and some of these letters are tens of pages long. Um, it's not impossible. They said they correspond with Lovecraft, but either way, they translate Lovecraft and publish him in France. And part of the connection here is that Lovecraft stuff was quickly sold off by Arkham House to the Army, to the Department of Defense, in um, sort of oddly shaped, like quasi paperbacks of literature that were given to troops so they could read. So a hell of a lot of English copies of Lovecraft ended up in France during World War II and afterwards. They translate these and they propagate Lovecraft in Europe, but they write the book The Murder of Magicians, which comes out in the early 60s and becomes kind of like, I mean, arguably it's the show Bible for the History Channel. Like Ancient Aliens, Nazis in Antarctica, Ancient Secret Societies and Illuminati. Like, that all kind of gets coalesced by them in the post-war period, and they are an acknowledged influence on a number of ancient alien writers, in most importantly, Eric, Eric von, von Daniken. Yeah. Now, von Daniken does never mentions Lovecraft by name or anything, but he does eventually admit, yes, I was familiar with Morning of the Magicians, and Morning of the Magicians they cite Lovecraft as an important source for understanding like the multiverse and multidimensional and the imaginal and dreams. Now they don't literally say, Oh, Cthulhu is the Nazca lines, but I mean, come on. Like there's a clear relationship. Yeah. So that's why it's important. It's one thing to know, Oh, where's this like literature thing that is turned into plush Cthulhu's and whatnot and cartoons and whatnot. Where does that come from? That's cool and all that's fine. But the fact is this is a clear vector for the ancient aliens concept. It's also a vector because Lovecraft very quickly becomes a major favorite in the pulp science fiction world in which we find people like Ray Palmer, Richard Shaver, and um, Jack Parsons is reading this stuff where these are the people that create things like the flying saucer. In the 1940s, Maurice Dorial, who creates, in essence, the reptilians, and he's literally plagiarizing Lovecraft and Howard and Frank Belknap Long all in the Lovecraft circle. So this stuff is feeding into the beginnings of what becomes UFO culture. So it's no surprise that about 15 years in the UFO culture, out pop, oh, aliens came here, and they had bases in Antarctica, and they are remembered as Ancient gods. Yeah. Which is Lovecraft. It it certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's funny because we, we, you know, on Monster Talk, we, we try to give, you know, when people see things, uh, we, we try to give as much evidence as we can, find out where they come from. But as I keep returning to again and again, this concept of scripteds, you know, the idea that, that the pop culture that influences can actually cause us to see things, that sounds wackadoodle because most people walk around and say, oh, I don't see things because I watched the movie. Yeah, but, but just because you don't doesn't mean that other people don't. <laughs> well, first of all, there's that. Second yeah. of all, I think there's a rephrasing that might help here. Yeah. It's not that you see things. It's that you 
perceive things. Yeah, and remember. And that's yeah, a big yeah. difference. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and and so many of the things that you do talk about on the show, and and some of this makes it in the book. I talk about some of this. You know, uh, you've done your Slenderman episode. Well, you don't get Slenderman without Lovecraft. You sure like, don't. That is yeah, that yeah. is clearly an inspiration on on the creation of Slenderman. Honestly, a lot of the things we talk about kind of come through that lens and a lot of our pop culture. I mean, how much of our superhero stuff comes from Jack Kirby and Jack Kirby is very much playing with ancient alien stuff. Uh, and not just when he reads Von Daniken, although he's clearly doing that as well. Yeah. No, for um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, so now starting in the seventies, you have the first Lovecraft Renaissance and the revival and kind of the creation of, you know, I mean, arguably you could argue that modern geek culture is in essence a great pulp revival. So Lovecraft gets mentioned, but a lot of the seeds of this stuff planted in the fifties and sixties is all of these, the, you know, these, these folks reading stuff and like, Oh, well I want an evil ancient book or I want an elder God. And they put them in their comics and they put them in their science fiction. But, since there was no geek reference culture, there's no point in saying, oh, and of course it's Lovecraft. They play around with it and, and you know, make up names. But there's, there's obvious influence. But then that inspires uh, also paranormal stuff. I mean I've talked about on this show the paranormal unified field theory concept I've been working with that, again, I didn't invent. I just gave a catchy acronym, the PUFF, to. That's right. Um, but it's got real elements of this. You know, a, a, a John Keel. Uh, we know Gray Barker, he's working with Al Bender on his men in black and you read that stuff and there's a rainbow city in Antarctica where they meet aliens that are too horrible to describe. Okay. If you're talking about an ancient alien city in Antarctica where there's aliens too horrible to describe, you're knocking on Lovecraft's door. I'm, I'm reading, um, uh, 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 the Bender book right now about Yeah. The, yeah. So, mm, Yeah. So that that's 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 something going on. By the on way, there. it's, it's one yes. of those things where it's like Bender is one of those people who, oh, I would have loved to have met him. I mean, he seems like right up my alley. You know, one of those guys I would love to go have a drink with or just hang out with. But he's like he's decorated his whole upstairs attic room with uh, movie stuff, macabre stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. He had he had yeah. his he had his like his it's his like chamber of horrors, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But but which he's also is- he's experiencing the weirdest things, which. If you read it, it sounds like he's having some kind of psychotic episode. It doesn't sound like a real experience. But it's become uh, accepted as he was legitimately uh, influenced by real experiences. And I'm not sure how people were able to read his his account and turn them into, yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, I mean, well, because you get these intermediaries. You know, you get Gray Barker, just like you get Ray Palmer to Richard Shaver. You know, I mean, they, right? This, they're helping. They're helping, uh, as you say, shave off the rough edges. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Yeah, uh, no, a bit of bit of folia do, but yeah. So, so Lovecraft becomes, I, I think, one of these. Again, not alone though. I mean, he is part of. You know, we mentioned Robert E. Howard. He's partially responsible for the whole reptilian alien thing, and Lovecraft is taking at least some of his stuff from Arthur Machen. I mean, it has been argued, and I would argue that there's a there is a good argument. And frankly, if you go back and read things like Communion, it was a very good argument, I think, <laughs> that the whisper in darkness about, oh, an author goes to a lonely cabin in the mountains of Vermont and horrible things happen. Wilmarth. Uh, yeah, is, <laughs> Wilmarth is, is, the, is one of the origins of what becomes alien abduction. 
Well, yeah. but that story is a Machen story, and Machen was extremely influenced by the late Victorian archaeology of pygmy fairy races, which we talked about on the fairies episode. Yes. So while we, we, I think we focus a lot on Lovecraft, one, for legitimate reasons, and two, everybody knows who he is, or not everybody, but, but a he lot fo- of But he forms a cultural nexus that yeah. spins off to become everything we know about the, the weird in the 21st century, which is crazy, but, yeah. but it's true. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he, 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 he he's a cultivated... super connector for non. Well, I shouldn't say nonsense. He's a super connector for the bizarre. Right. He 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 cultivated these networks. I mean, he wrote a small number of stories. He never got a book published in his life, but he connected all of these people who went on to do all these other things. Some of them didn't. Some of them did. Robert Block, of course, with uh, Psycho and and any number of other things he worked on, um, but uh, Star Trek included. Um, which is why there are elder gods in Star Trek. Because yeah, there are. Yeah, there sure are. Uh, yes. Um, that's not an accident. Cat's paw. But um, he did act as a nexus. He was connecting numerous people and influencing uh, numerous people. And we see this today. And it's funny. He talks about hating games when he, he he's like, oh, it's a waste of time. Which if you think of the kind of games, I guess, that probably existed at his time, it's true. He's clearly a role player. Like, there's a reason why role playing games have so focused on Lovecraft because, like, oh, so me and my friends, we got together and we came up with fantasies together. And we sort of like knit rules, but we're all telling different stories, and we're sort of like, that's that's the same thing. Well, and like, so is Robert E. Howard. I mean, he oh yeah, was absolutely, literally, literally a role player, right? I mean, but without yeah. rules, right? Yeah. No, he he yeah. saw himself as this, and 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 Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft's that one dude at the table. It's like. You're going to play a professor again, aren't you? Because <laughs> every one of his characters is a very obvious. Right. Very, he wants to be a professor and Robert E. Howard wants to be a barbarian. Like, yeah. 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 You know, it's like so they're always playing the same guy and it's obviously a, a, a power fantasy or a wish fantasy uh, of some way. Of course, Lovecraft kills all of his or makes them go mad. So I'll let you do the psychology on that. But uh, but yeah. So. No, I, I, there's a lot more. We, we focused on, on, on chapter 10, uh, on the Cthulhu stuff, which I did not expect. Like, I really didn't think that it would be that clear. I thought there'd be like, oh, he's just an archaeology. But I was like, well, actually, turns out you can kind of say Cthulhu is King Tut. Not exactly. Not directly. And there's more. I mean, uh, you know, stuff that Lovecraft wrote about archaeology, about lost races, about um, uh, monuments, about Egypt. But I, I think that that's the big takeaway is he melded concepts from Margaret Murray with Fort with larger ideas about the universe. Because, I mean, his astronomy is part of it. Like, I don't want to downplay that. But I think that because he talked so much about that, because he published astronomical zines as a kid, that's always been heavily pushed. But when you actually start to engage with his works, the way that he approaches the past – so here's the thing. Everybody always talks about Lovecraft's aliens being different, except they're not. Like, oh, they've got tentacles. Oh, they're weird (laughs) colors. Oh, they're, they're, they're a not... cone-shaped thing with claws. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, they're very different and bizarre, which, to be fair, aliens are generally like, oh, look, there's another Star Trek race with ridges on their head. But 
when he creates their societies, their societies are very human. And the way that he communicates that they are ancient but recognizable societies versus total chaos is, oh, they live in ruins that look like Machu Picchu or Mycenae or Kish or Babylon. And they have hieroglyphs and they have high priest. Cthulhu is a high priest in a tomb that curses people that delve into it. I mean, come on. Like that is archaeology as it was done. So even though he's dealing with things that are billions of years old that should have no kinship to anything human, you can't do that and turn it into a narrative easily unless you're going to focus on that. And he's trying to communicate stuff about our place in the universe. So what does he create? He basically creates what were being termed anthropological survivals, this idea of a witch cult or of an early religion. And he's like, well, it's billions of years old and it's squid people, but they're basically Incas. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what they are. They're basically Incas and Romans. And like, it's clear when he talks about his, his elder things, like his Shoggoths, they're not us. They're something else. Yeah. The fact that he kind of racializes them and talks about it sort of as a slave revolt is telling about his thoughts about who's human and who's not. But his elder things are basically Romans. Although, to be fair, there probably wouldn't be a who goes there if there weren't uh, mountains of madness. So, uh, No, I see who goes there is yeah. an alien alien. Yeah. Who goes there is I'm going to get in your bloodstream and I'm just going to like per- parasite you. His Shoggoths are – slaves in Roman or antebellum South or English colonial yeah, yeah, society. Yeah. And so they literally have a slave uprising, which yeah. is everybody. If you're a slave owner, it's everyone's horror, right? Yeah. Right, and and right. he very much saw himself at, in, in racial terms in that sense. Yeah. So, so he is very much dealing for all of the Lovecraft deals with deep time. When he deals with deep time, he always puts on like the training wheels of archeology. span it's like, oh, there's a billion-year-old city built by starfish, yet it looks like an Incan ruin. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's a 400-million-year-old society built by things that spore and send their, their, their minds through time, yet they look like scholars at Cambridge. <laughs> Well, I he mean, does, and, I, he, and I don't blame him. That's he not a, does that's do not the a whole fault. thing on, on at least in Call of Cthulhu. He does the whole thing where the non-Euclidean geometry is more than just a it's not Euclidean. It's the you can literally accidentally run off into an angle and disappear. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> no, he gets, no. When it comes to the physics, he he deals with that nicely in the math. Yeah. And I would actually argue he he fixes the problem in the dreams in the in, in the witch house. Yeah, where you go into the other world. And it's weird. Like things are bizarre and strange. Yes, yes. And, good point. Good point. Yeah. And, and our yeah. and our witchcraft is an attempt at trying to explain that. So in I, a, I think in, in a way that very few authors have, he makes yeah. the idea of the alien seem really beyond just it's another planet and everything's basically the same. No, no, no. Yeah. no. Get ready because this shit is weird. Yeah. No. He yeah. he he yeah. accomplishes it that yeah. very well in that story. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But like Shadow Out of Time. Uh, and, and I think he accomplishes it to some degree in Whisper in Darkness, but Shadow of Time, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Mountains of Madness, he creates human-like societies, projects them into the past, 
but makes them amazing by their ancient time depth and allows him to play with ideas of evolution and allows him to play with ideas of decline. Because if you do believe in sort of 19th century superior, 18th to 19th century superior society, and you're at the top of the peak, your greatest fear is falling down. You know, if you're at the top of the ladder, your greatest fear is going down that ladder. Yeah. And that's why there are so many stories about degeneration. I mean, yeah. you see this uh, in yeah, uh, yeah. the time machine where the future is, oh, humanity g- degenerated into the Morlocks and the Eloy. And this notion of going native and colonial tropes is a fear of degeneration, a fear of – I mean, you've got to remember. No, no, for real. Extin- yeah. Extinction is invented or discovered by people around 1820. I mean, the idea that, you know, the forces of nature could wipe clean entire realms of biology that you don't even have a clue of, that's horrifying. In essence, right, right. Enlightenment science realizes its mortality in the 19th century. In and fact, argue- one of the early yeah. the criticisms of creationists was that, that yeah. the Lord wouldn't create something that was extinctioned. Like, I mean, yeah. w- that's not really a verb, but I mean, it w- it, it, you wouldn't create a race. Or a species that just to destroy get, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so but, it's a it's a the sort of ma- the materialism inherent in in, in natural selection is, uh, is 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 anathema to many people of faith, and I understand that completely because it is a uh, an ego busting experience to the idea that that no 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 you may think you're really important, but oh my gosh, the universe is. 13, 14 billion years old, and Earth is 4.5 billion right. years old. And, and and that's the kind of stuff that Lovecraft looks at and says, I could say this is a scientific fact, but I'm willing to acknowledge it's a horror. It's a horror yeah. to us to realize that we're intelligent and uh, can can predict, you know, plan a future, and we're completely insignificant in the cosmos. See, I don't want to minimize that. That is all in there. Yeah. Like, you know, very much. I mean, that's that amazing paragraph at the beginning of the Call of Cthulhu where, you know, the sciences all straining at their various ways shall someday piece together disassociated knowledge. Right, which is uh, our, that, our, our, our basic – our defense against the supernatural our, – our, yeah. our, our madness is the, the – our inability yeah. to coordinate it, our it, – it, it yeah. will show us the frightful nature of the universe and our yeah. place therein yeah. and, and our reaction will be we will either – uh, go mad from the revelation or flee into the safety and comfort of a, a new dark age. Yeah. So that, that concept of deep time and our horrifying place as a small blip in time and a small blip in space is there, but to make it work, he has to deal, he uses archeology. span Like, <laughs> yeah, he sure because does. otherwise, because otherwise it's like, Oh look, there's a planet full of like, Things we can't empathize with or understand that don't live in any way we can possibly – I mean at that point you're losing people. So if you're trying to communicate, oh my god, look, we are adrift in a sea and it, and it is best that we don't know it, the way to try to say, look, there are things like us that are way more powerful but like us that but that died, that, that were gone, is to make things like us. So he uses it – because otherwise if you go that weird – then it's just a kaleidoscope of bizarreness, which has its value, but isn't a great storytelling approach. Right. <laughs> well, you know. I don't want to bring everybody down because I, I you know, I, I still enjoy being human and uh, I, I like humanist values. And I think as a species, we can accomplish amazing things. But Lovecraft reminds us uh, that maybe uh, humility is an important thing to consider, I think. 
Yeah, well, because at the end of the day, you know, your star is going to go Nova. It's going to eat your planet, and everything you ever did and ever struggled for gets vaporized. But that aside, this is a great book <laughs> and a lot of fun to read. So, Jeb, I think well, you've done a, a, a lot of really good is, scholarship here. Yeah. My plan is is to vacuum seal one, get rich enough to launch it so it gets beyond. You should have put where it the, in, uh, the sun in, will become a red giant. I was going to say you should have put get, it in, uh, in uh, Elon Musk's trunk. <laughs> yeah, that's not far enough. You got to go farther. So I'm not there yet. I got to raise more funds. But yeah, no. Uh, so that's just one chapter. There's a lot of cool stuff. There is. Uh, there is some really. We've great talked about some of anarchy fantasies. You know, witches and murder. I'm going to be investigating a little witches and murder soon. Uh, Tut's curse. But I kind of thought, yeah, for for monster talk, you know, you you visited Cthulhu before, but you know, hey, turns out Cthulhu may come from this. Now, again, it's a circumstantial case, but I think it's a pretty strong one. I think it is. And, I, so, so should I call this uh, Call of Cthulhu? There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I will say I do not think he pulls any of the name from there. I, I do want to make that clear. Yeah. I don't know where he gets the name from. The fact that there's a bunch of T's and U's in there, there might be like a temptation to say that. But I suspect he's. I see no evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he says it's cool. Yeah. Right. I, that's like, you know, <laughs> uh, my, 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 my favorite take on that. There used to be a YouTube thing. Um, it's like tickle uh, Well, yeah. Well, that comes from Poe. That comes from Poe. But uh, but there used to be a YouTube channel called Calls for Cthulhu, and it was a call-in show with Cthulhu as a puppet they were using. Oh, that's pretty and good. At, and at one point, one of the callers calls in. Is like, so how do you say your name? He's like, kid. How many tongues you got? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, you got seven tongues. <laughs> it's like, if you don't got seven tongues, you're never gonna say it. Give it up. Uh, so I I, I kind of like to leave it. Uh, I kind of like to leave that there. That's nice. So, uh, since, since you've been on before, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know this you, is your first. You've asked me my favorite monster. Yeah. So let's do something a little different. What's your? Uh, I, I, this is kind of a crazy question. I should have prepared you for it, but sure. What's your favorite uh, movie adaptation of a, a a Lovecraftian story? It doesn't have to be strictly Lovecraft, but a Lovecraftian story. Well, not unlike the monster one, I'm of course going to give you several answers. All right, that's what I do. Um. My favorite straight up, um, my favorite straight up Lovecraft adaptation as a movie. Ooh, okay, it's a it's a hard call. The H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did an, a black and white, like what if somebody made in the 1920s an adaptation of the Call of Cthulhu? They sure did. Yeah, yep. It's really good. It's really good. It's a silent film. It's very clearly like in sort of the German expressionist style. It's excellent. They 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 and the, and they and then they did an audio play of it, like a 1930s radio play where they sort of do the things they couldn't do in the movie. Uh, and I love both of those. Those are fantastic. So maybe that's it. I, I that's probably it. That said, there's a movie made in the I want to say the late '80s, The Resurrected. Oh yeah, with yeah. Chris Sarandon in yes, it. Yes, that, that is, is shockingly good. Yeah, it's it's an it's a very close. There's minor modifications made, but they're all good ones in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's a close. I want to say Dan O'Bannon. It maybe is. Maybe? So Dan O'Bannon was the director. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Dan O'Bannon, if yeah. you don't, if people don't know, was one of the screenwriters or the primary screenwriter on Alien. 
And Dark which Star. Is why, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Dark Star, which is why Alien has a hell of a lot of Lovecraft in it. And a lot of what he wrote became elements that were played with with Prometheus. Yep. And there's, again, more Lovecraft in there as well. But he made The Resurrected, which is a very close adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And it's a very good, fun movie. It feels a little low budget, but it's really worth it. Uh, I highly recommend that. So uh, I'd probably give The Call of Cthulhu the winner there, but it's real close. Cool. Um, Now, that being said, so that's my favorite adaptation directly of a Lovecraft uh, movie into a movie. Um, it's kind of hard not to say the thing. Yeah. That's pretty damn Lovecraftian. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a based on who goes there, but can't, uh, but, uh, Carpenter really heavily pushed the Lovecraft, the aspects to that story in any number of ways. And it is a very Shagathy. I mean, it pretty much is clearly a Shagoth in, in essence, and it's dug up in Antarctica. Um, so I'd, I'd have to go with that as my obvious answer. But I guess the thing I would say is I'm always charmed when I see solid Lovecraftian concepts pop up in movies or media that are not called out. Yeah. So you recently did the Richard Haddam show yeah. uh, about the Mothman prophecies and – because it's based on Keel and Keel's kind of Lovecraftian in some respects, there it, it shows up there a little. Um, the fact that 2001 A Space Odyssey starts – not starts, but then goes to an ancient inscrutable monument being dug up on the moon that issues a call to send humans to undescribable, inexplicable god entity aliens – Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not just him. There's lots of people. I'm not saying that's a direct thing, but like <sighs> the fact that that movie starts with hominins and then goes to an archaeological dig on the moon is, is yeah, that's enjoyable. And then many others. There are many others. So I would definitely say the thing as the most sort of Lovecraftian film in that sense, the original alien elements of it, which gets kind of ruined later. Um, by later things. Um, but as an adaptation, I probably have to give a, a narrow win to the 2005 Call of Cthulhu. I liked their Whisper in Darkness, their talkie. I don't think it's as good. I enjoyed uh, it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, they, it, I, I should rewatch it. I like the stop uh, motion, and I, I enjoyed the the uh, faithfulness to the source material. Yeah, no, it's just there were bits of it that I mean that that's there's a reason we talk about the Cthulhu mythos and not the fungi from Yugoth mythos. Yeah, yeah, you're there, right. There you're is, right. Yeah. yeah, I um, <laughs> that's my we've never really talked about. It, but that's my favorite Lovecraft story. But I, at one point, I thought it would be really fun to do a screenplay, and I sort of did a deconstruction of the story, and it's almost like uh, uh, the story. Uh, by Kafka about the uh, metamorphosis where 
by the time the story starts, everything's already happened. Like, like there's really oh, yeah. not much action in the story. Like, you get everything as sort of flashbacks or uh, or journal entries, or, or it, it's not an action packed story. No, but, but if you wanted to present it as an action packed story, it could be really good. Uh, and I think that's what they tried to do here. Uh, so, I, yeah, I enjoyed it, but I, I have my own take on it, which I don't know if anything will ever come to that or not, but I'm enjoying writing it. Well, that's one of those kind of like, you know, sort of, you know, very simple critiques you could make of, you know, The Call of Cthulhu. It's like, well, it's a dude reading a bunch of notes made by another dude yeah, who collected yeah. the notes of another dude who got them from the dreams of another dude. Of course, it's a Lovecraft story, so they're yeah. all dudes. I actually wanted dudes. to write a, a cowboy story entirely done in letters and newspaper accounts called The Adventures of E. Pistol Larry. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. You know what? I, you know what? I'm not normally a fan of your of the puns. Not your puns, just puns in general. Yeah. That's a good one. It's not bad. Like, like <laughs> if no one has done an E. Pistol Larry thing like that, you kind of need to. No, it's, uh, it's almost like a homework assignment. I feel like I have to do just for the pun. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I actually like that. Um, so yeah, so that would be my answers. Oh, so well, I want to say that uh, this is not one of the greatest things I've seen, but I did actually watch this last weekend. Um, I watched a film. Uh, it was a made-for-TV movie called The Horror at Thirty-Seven Thousand Feet. And the only reason I watched it was because of the cast. It had Chuck Connors, uh, the Rifleman, Buddy okay. Ebsen uh, from okay. the Beverly Hillbillies, yeah, yeah, uh, William Shatner from Star Trek. This is not the this is not the Twilight Zone episode. No, no, Terror no, 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 not at all. No, it's not. It's its own thing. Okay. It's got Roy Finnis, okay. uh, Paul oh. Winfield. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, Russell Johnson from uh, the uh, Gilligan's Island. He's a professor in Gilligan's Island. And okay. it's a Lovecraftian story about uh, a rich architect who's trying to move uh, on a 747. He's trying to move a uh, an ancient uh, chapel uh, from England to New York. And uh, he's basically uh, commanded, or I guess, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, he's commi- uh, purchased the rights to to get a 747 and it only has enough capacity for like 10 or 12 passengers plus his cargo and while they're traveling or trying to travel this ancient druid magic starts like taking uh uh control of the flight and it's it's some lovecraftian stuff i was really surprised it it, it, it's i wouldn't call it great uh but i really enjoyed it and it's really cool to see these classic tv actors doing this uh fairly serious Lovecraftian style movie. How bizarre. Yeah. No, I'd never even heard of it before last week. And I was like, I don't know if I want to watch this. Holy crap. Look at this cast. I'm watching this. And it was a hoot. I really enjoyed it. And they kept talking about the old ones and druids. It it mixes all this stuff. Wow. Real nice. Nice. It's available streaming on YouTube. I I highly recommend it. Terror, horror at 37,000 feet? Yep, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, you can watch yeah. it straight off of uh, YouTube. Uh, it's it's right. only like an hour and 13 minutes. It's, it's, uh, that, it's, that might get logged into my uh, my watch list. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's, in fact, I'll paste it in your notes here. here I'll, Excellent. And uh, there's straight to the content. There you go, sir. Awesome. 
So, well, thank you so much, Jeb. Uh, I hope this helps you push some paper. Uh, this is an awesome book, and I really appreciate the effort you've put into the scholarship on this. Uh, I, I, thank de- you. I deeply hope that this is the kind of book that drives people to learn more about archaeology and to consider the amount of, of fact-based uh, uh, hard work that goes into like making these discoveries. It's, it's not just your best guess. There's a lot more to it than that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Cool. It was really good talking to you, and I hope you have a good evening. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard an interview with Jeb Card, archaeologist, friend of the show, and author of the new book, Spooky Archaeology. A link to his book is in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions and views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Hey, if you're in the New York City area, don't forget that Nexus, the 2018 Northeastern Conference on Science and Skepticism, is July 12th through 15th, which is this weekend if you're catching the show hot off the press. I won't be there, but lots of really cool people will be, including former Monster Talk guest Natalia Reagan, the hosts of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, and some science guy named Bill. If you're attending... I want you to know that I wish I would be able to join you, and I hope you learn a lot. I hope you meet a lot of great people, and I hope you have a safe conference. If you're in the area and want to attend, go to NECSS.org. That's NECSS.org. Tell them Monster Talk sent you. They probably won't know what that means, but tell them anyway. (laughs) Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys, as always, and most sincerely. Thank you for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.